0: thing was more recent, we struggle with that guilt even more. And I don't know what it is that you struggle with, but I'm guessing that like me, there are days that you struggle spiritually more than other days. Maybe it's one of those days that you just struggle to have the right attitude, or you struggle to keep your mind in the right place, and you think about negative things, and and maybe some of those days you say things that you shouldn't say or you do things that you shouldn't do, and, and maybe if you have one of those days that it's just not a spiritually good day, you lay your head down on your pillow at night, and you begin to question your relationship with God, and you think something like, boy, if Jesus comes back tonight, I sure don't feel good about my relationship with him. The more I talk to Christians and the more I talk to college students, I discover that there are a lot of folks who struggle with having confidence in their salvation. They struggle in their confidence in their relationship with God. And I don't think it matters what age group it is, but I remember when I was in high school, struggling with that, and in college struggling with that. And you think, well, maybe the more you mature, you, you get, move away from that. But what I've discovered is I think people, regardless of their age bracket, they struggle to say with confidence, I know I'm saved. And if Jesus comes back tonight, I'm ready to spend eternity with him. There's something about that statement that for whatever reason, we struggle to say confidently. And our kids see that. My dad tells the story of when he was a little boy a long time ago, growing up in the hills of West Virginia, a little country church in this little t- small town. That There was a, a very elderly woman that was kind of the one of the matriarchs of that that congregation, had been there forever, everybody knew her, everybody respected her, and he remembers when he was eight years old, walking out the back of the church building, and just overhearing her say, if I make it into heaven, it'll be by the skin of my teeth. How do you think that impacts an eight-year-old, to hear someone of, of that spiritual level, a woman who's been a Christian for for decades and is looked up to by many, how do you think that affects an eight-year-old to hear her say, if I make it in, it'll be be by the skin of my teeth. See, when we think those things and even say those things or unintentionally communicate those things, it impacts a, a younger generation. And we struggle to be confident in our salvation. And you might be wondering, what's this have to do with navigating our culture today, as we try to figure out how to walk in our culture and be followers of Jesus in our culture, and, and even more so, how do we engage our culture and point them to Jesus? What's this have to do with this? Let me tell you why I think our lack of confidence is important in the context of this theme that we've given this week. We said yesterday that engaging our culture like Jesus starts with personal transformation. And if I haven't been transformed in such a way that I am confident in my salvation, I'm likely gonna to struggle to engage my culture. Or let me put it this way, it's gonna be awfully hard for me to engage my culture and point them to Jesus, and point them to relationship in Jesus, with Jesus if I'm not confident in my relationship with Jesus. If I'm questioning my own salvation, it's gonna be awfully hard to point other people to salvation. I think there's a couple of different reasons for that. One reason that it's going to be hard to do that is because we're going to question our own worth and ability to do it. Maybe you've been there before where you think, how could I share my faith? How could I talk to anybody? I'm not good enough for that. God would, God doesn't think that I'm good enough. I don't even know if I'm, if I'm good enough for him. to. So how can I share that with others? And I think another reason maybe we would struggle, even if we do talk to somebody else about our faith, if we are questioning our salvation, we're going to be weak in the way that we talk about it. We're not gonna engage our culture in confident, bold ways because we're not confident. And if we're not confident in our faith, if we do happen to engage our culture and talk about our faith in some way, it might just come across hypocritical. People can see the lack of confidence that we have maybe deep down inside. And so I think, It's important to talk about confidence if we're going to engage our culture for Jesus because it's going to be awfully hard to engage our culture if we're not confident. Number two, I think Satan sometimes will use parts of our culture and certain people in our culture to tempt us to question our salvation and to tempt us to live in guilt. I mean, think about cancel culture, right, where... No matter what you do, somebody's watching, they're just waiting for you to slip up in the smallest way or say something that they don't like, and they're ready to point you out and say, see, look, you're a hypocrite, hypocrite. And all it takes is that happening a couple times, and all of a sudden we begin to think, well, maybe I am. And so it's possible that Satan uses culture to tempt us into living consistently in Guilt. And so if we're going to be transformed in such a way that we can navigate our culture and engage our culture like Jesus, I think we've got to wrestle with and deal with this tendency to doubt our relationship with Jesus Christ. So how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you wrestle with this temptation that you see among Christians to think, to wonder if we're actually saved or not? And I want us to point, I want us to look tonight at at one biblical character that I think is helpful, and and that's Peter. Now, the reason that we like the Apostle Peter so much is because he's a lot like us. Sometimes he is really spiritual, and sometimes he's not. I don't know about you, but I, I relate to that. Sometimes I feel really spiritual, like I've got it going on, and my relationship with God's in a good place, but then sometimes I don't feel so spiritual. I mean, I don't know. If you have kids, sometimes your kids can just pull the spiritual right out of you, right? I, I'm just kidding, love you kiddos, right? But you know what I mean? It's it's difficult. Sometimes the spiritual, sometimes it's not. I mean, you've got Peter in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, this prophet or that prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? It's Peter that jumps in and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And we're like, wow, man, Peter, that's awesome. But it's that same Peter just a, few verses later right after that account Matthew says that when Jesus begins to predict his death burial and resurrection in Jerusalem that that Peter jumps in and rebukes him and says no you're not doing that and Jesus looks at Peter and calls him says get behind me satan do you think ever Peter ever thought or remembered the moment in which Satan called or Peter called him Jesus called him satan man you would never forget that there's a there's a rock bottom moment spiritual high than a spiritual low it's Peter who when Jesus speaks about the bread of life, and he mentions eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and people get kind of wigged out by that and and start leaving. They stop following Jesus. He looks at his disciples and says, are you guys gonna go too? You gonna leave too? And it's Peter who jumps in and says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're like, wow, Peter. But this is also the same guy that when Jesus is being arrested, pulls out his sword and takes a swipe at somebody's neck, misses and cuts his ear off. Peter, pretty spiritual at times, and then there are times that he is not so spiritual. Perhaps at his lowest point, we find him in Luke chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 22. And Jesus is going through a series of trials. He's been arrested. It's a disastrous few hours. He's been arrested He's been tried, he's he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, then is arrested, and now he's begun this series of trials. And all the other disciples flee from Jesus, right? But it's Peter who follows along, and we pick this story up in Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized him, that's Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Now this whole scene is a complete farce of justice. We could go line by line and talk about all the different ways that the Jews are violating their own rules for justice in the way they're treating Jesus. But it's the middle of the night. He's brought not to a place of court. He's brought to the high priest's house in the middle of the night. Nothing good's going to happen in a situation like this. But Peter follows along. He's following at a distance. Verse 55, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, middle of the night, maybe it's cold, and sat down together, Peter sat down among them Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also is with him, with Jesus. So she recognizes Peter. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour... Still another insisted saying, certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. So twice Jesus, Peter, said, I do not know the man. And he gets asked a third time, you're one of those guys, I know you. And Peter's response in verse 60 is this, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. The other gospel accounts give us, Matthew's, especially, gives us a little more flavor here. And Matthew says that when he responds, he invokes a curse on himself and swears. Now, when I was growing up, I thought that meant that Peter cussed at him. Peter was swearing at the the guards and cussed. That's probably not what's going on here. Here's Here's what Peter is doing. He says, put it in our words today, basically invoking a curse and swearing this way would be Peter saying, I do not know him, and if I'm lying, may God strike me down in his wrath. some pretty strong language to use when you know you're lying. He denies Jesus, invokes a curse from God on himself if he's lying. And here's what happens, middle of verse 60, and immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Have you ever imagined what that look must have been like when Jesus turns and looks at Peter and their eyes meet? This is just one artistic rendition of this. This is from the Lumo Project, some pretty good videos from the Gospels. You can find them on YouTube or on the Lumo website. It's just one way that folks have imagined Jesus looking at Peter. I think I've always imagined it something like this. Jesus looks frustrated, disgusted, disappointed, angered. Right? I mean, that's how I'm imagining in this moment, Jesus looking at Peter. But I wonder if maybe there was something else. Maybe there was a different look in Jesus' eye. We'll come back to that in a minute. But this moment wrecks Peter. Verse 61, 62, and he went out and wept bitterly. Now, there's no doubt that this has to be one of the rock bottom moments in the life of Peter. He's devastated. He knows what he's done. He's devastated. His, he, he's wrecked emotionally by what he's done. But we know the rest of the story because all you have to do is fast forward seven or eight weeks, and who is it that's standing before thousands of people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? It's Peter. Who is it that is the primary character in the story of the early church in the book of Acts for the first 12 chapters or so? Who's the main character? It's Peter. Peter moves on from this moment to become the primary leader in the earliest days of the church. And God uses him in significant ways, from rock bottom to being used in significant ways. And I think we have to ask the question, how? How does Peter move from a moment in which he must feel so much guilt for what he's done to being used in such incredible ways by God? And for me, I think the answer might be found earlier in this chapter. So once you go back a few verses in Luke 22 and find Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. So again, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And then in a scene that most of us are aware of, he predicts Peter's denial. But there's a little piece of this passage that I hadn't noticed before. Watch what happens. Verse 31, same chapter, Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Can you imagine hearing those words come off the lips of Jesus directed towards you? Peter, Satan's coming after you. And you skip a verse, and we get to verse 33, and Peter's response is, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I I would never do anything. I wouldn't let Satan have me in this way. I'll go with you anywhere. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times that you know me. Now, if you read the other gospel accounts, Peter responds to this prediction of the denial and says, I would never ever, it's like this double negative language that's used, I would never ever deny you. I'll never forsake you, Jesus. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of of Jesus here. And that's hard to do. None of us are Jesus. But imagine that one of your closest friends is going to deny that he ever knew you or she ever knew you, and you're in your darkest moment, most difficult moment you've ever experienced, and the person that one of the people that knows you best denies that they even know your name or knows your face. And you know about it ahead of time. What are you going to say to that friend? who treats you in such a despicable way. Well, I can imagine some things that I'd say in a moment like that, right? What in the world is wrong with you, boy? How in in the world? I mean, we could make a long list of things that we might say in a moment like that if we knew somebody was gonna betray us in such a personal way. But watch what Jesus says. And I want you to go back to the verse that we skipped. Knowing that Jesus, that Peter would deny that he even knows Jesus, knowing that, here's what Jesus says to him, verse 32. Satan's gonna come after you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Knowing that Peter would deny him three times, Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, Peter, I know this is coming, but I want you to know that I have prayed about this, and I have prayed for you, and my prayer is that this does not destroy your faith. My prayer is that this does not wreck your faith, and here's what I'm praying for, that you're going to come back from this, and you're going to strengthen your brothers. God's going to use you in significant ways. Peter, I am on your side. Do you think Peter remembered just these words on the screen in the days after this? Sure, Jesus had predicted this would happen, but then Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, I'm not out to get you. I know you're going to do this, and I'm not out to, I'm not, I'm not angry with you. I'm not out to punish you. My prayer is that this doesn't wreck your faith, that you come back from this and are used in significant ways. For me, this is the key. How does Peter... Come back from such a rock bottom moment when he denies that he knows Jesus. I think he bounces back from this because he knows that Jesus is on his side. And so, as I try to reimagine, and this is just my imagination, the Bible doesn't say what happens, when their eyes meet after Peter denies Jesus those three times and they look at one another, I've always imagined disappointment, frustration, etc. I wonder if the look in the eyes wasn't, maybe first of all, I told you so. You know you can say that with your eyes, right? I told you so. And then I wonder if there just wasn't a little bit, whatever that look in the eyes, if the look wasn't something like, remember what I said. I'm not out to get you. I I knew you were gonna do this. It hurts. But I'm on your side. Maybe instead of bitterness or frustration or disappointment in the eyes of Jesus, maybe there's mercy and grace. He looks at his friend that he's prayed for and wants to bounce back from this moment. So, how does Peter come back from rock bottom? He comes back because he knows Jesus is on his side and he's not out to get him. Tonight, as you think about the moments in which you have spiritual bad days. And you lay your head down on your pillow and i don't know what that day might look for you but it's just been maybe it's a bad day maybe it's a bad couple of days or just a bad week and you lay your head down on your pillow at night and you think man i don't feel very good about this i sure hope jesus doesn't come back tonight and you begin to question your salvation you just kind of constantly live in limbo and you wonder could god love a sinner like me here's what i want you to remind I want you to remember if you remember nothing else tonight just like Jesus was on Peter's side, and he wasn't out to get him, even though he knew he was going to mess up significantly. After you sin, God is not out to get you. After you sin, God is not out to get you. I think sometimes we imagine that God is like some angry principle in the sky just waiting to punish us. You ever have one of those mean principles before? We have any principles here? Do we have any principles? We do. Oh, man, I don't know. I do not know who you are, but I don't know if you're one of those. But you've had a mean principal before, right? The kind that, or maybe a mean teacher, the kind that it just felt like they always had their eye on you, right? Just You couldn't walk by them. It's just like they're watching, just waiting for you to mess up so they could punish you. Or maybe you've had some sort of authority figure in your life that way, a coach or a camp counselor. Just They had their eye on you, just waiting for you to slip up. I think sometimes we imagine God as some grand principal in the sky just watching and waiting for us to mess up so that he can send us straight to hell. Do you know how I know that God is not out to get you after you sin? Because he sent Jesus to die for you. Like that's the center of our faith. And what we believe that God, in His great love, looked down on sinners who had rebelled against Him and said, I love them so much, I'm gonna send my son to die for them. He doesn't want to punish anybody. Now, in His perfect holiness that leads to His perfect justice and His wrath against rebellion and sin, He will punish. But he doesn't want to. He sends Jesus so he doesn't have to. He is not out to get us. He's out to save us. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it's kind of a difficult chapter. Apparently, there's some folks that are saying, hey, I thought Jesus was coming back soon. Where's he at? And they're asking some tough questions and kind of pushing. And Peter says, listen, with the Lord, a thousand days is like a day, a day is like a thousand, or a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. You can't count on God's time. So chill out a little bit. He will come on his own time. And he says, but he is waiting to come back. And here's why. He gives the answer in 2 Peter chapter three, verse nine. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And he says this, but God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you catch that? The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because God is patient towards us and he does not wish to punish anybody. He wants everybody to come to repentance. This is not a God who is an angry principal in the sky just waiting to punish us. He's a God who's looking at his people and says, I love you, I am on your side and I want you to come into relationship with me. After you sin, God's not out to get you, he wants to forgive you if you'll put your faith in him. Let me talk to two different groups of people that perhaps wrestle with this. Let me talk to the group that I think represents the vast majority of you and the the very vast majority of you in the room tonight. And that's those of you who are who are trying to follow Jesus, you're doing your best but sometimes you struggle with guilt and sometimes you struggle with your confidence. I guess five or six years ago, our theme for Horizons, one of our summer camps at Fried Hardeman on the campus, several of you come to Horizons. Our theme that year was fearless. Right? Some, did I see a fearless shirt last night? Did I I thought, yeah, I saw a fearless shirt last night. So our theme was, was fearless. And so that semester in chapel, they gave us a day in chapel to talk about horizons that summer. And so we thought, we'll, we'll have some fun with this and we'll talk about talk about some of their, their fears, and, and we'll talk about snakes and spiders and all the stuff. And so we sent out a survey to our students, our undergraduate students, and we asked them to fill out this survey to list their top three fears. We thought that'd be fun. We'd get us some statistics and say, here's your top fears, and it'd be fun. We introduced horizons. What we did not expect is that those answers would have spiritual depth to them. Now, Before I tell you some of the results of this, let me tell you the kind of student who responds to a survey like this. It's the really nice ones, right? Because you know what I do when I get a survey like this? I look at it and think, nah, and I click delete, right? Because I don't want to help those guys. So what kind of student like responds to a completely unnecessary survey like this? The really nice ones. And we got about 110 or 115 responses. Not bad for the total number that was sent out. And here's what we found out. You had snakes and spiders, et cetera, but number three on the list of their greatest fears, number three was fear about my relationship with God, and number six was fear of hell. From a group of students who were probably some of the most conscientious kids on campus. And that's it. Some of the most conscientious kids on campus as I look over a crowd like this, a Monday night gospel meeting crowd, I'm guessing that I've got some of the more conscientious folks here. I think it's possible that some who are more conscientious struggle with this more than others. You struggle with guilt and you question your salvation. Let me talk to you for just a second and try to convince you or try to give you some reasons why you can have some confidence about your relationship with God. Maybe I could put it, put it this way. I think sometimes we imagine our relationship with God like this. So imagine on the, the left side of your screen, right below saved, that's the, the point at which you become a Christian. And we imagine our Christian lives as kind of going back and forth from saved to lost, saved to lost. And maybe there's those times when we struggle spiritually or have a bad day and we're on that lost side. And we just hope that Jesus comes back or I die when I'm on the left side of the line. And not on the right side of the line. Let me illustrate it in a way that makes a little bit more sense to me. Imagine that this X on the screen is you and you have been baptized into Christ. You are in Christ where every spiritual blessing is found. And so you feel good about that, but over time you you struggle sometimes. And whatever your temptation is, you you struggle with that for a few days and maybe give in a little bit more than usual. You're sorry, but you lay your head down on your pillow at night and think, boy, I hope Jesus doesn't come back tonight because I feel like I'm out. So you double down with your temptation and you say, I'm not giving in. And for a couple, three days you do really well and you're better spiritually. And you feel better about yourself and so after two or three days you think, you know what, I think I'm I think I'm think back in. But then some guest preacher comes in and talks about the spiritual disciplines and how you should read your Bible and pray more often. And you're really busy this week and so you get to the end of the week and you haven't done it you just haven't found the time for it and you know you wanna turn off autopilot, all that stuff from yesterday. But you lay your head down on your pillow and you think, boy, I haven't after, I, I was gonna do that. I haven't read my Bible or prayed all week. Boy, I feel, I feel like I'm out. So then you start working real hard on it. You spend the next week every day in your Bible and you pray, maybe over a two week period, you get real serious and you even fast. And you think after a couple of weeks, oh boy, I'm good now, I'm back in. You ever played this game before? I know I played it when I was a teenager and I don't quit playing it sometimes. And I'm guessing some of you have played this game before. Do you know where you find this game in the New Testament? It's not there. It's not there. If you've been baptized into Christ, and you are trying to follow Jesus, you're trying to do what's right and you struggle sometimes and when you struggle, you confess your sins. If you are in Christ, that's a solid place to stand. We sing the words, on Christ the solid rock I stand. It's not my righteousness that allows me to stand there. It's the righteousness of Jesus and his blood. Have some confidence in the blood of Jesus and in the grace of God. You can stand in Christ confidently. Maybe we could say it like this. I work at the Stantonville Church of Christ. I I do most of the preaching there, and my dad works with me. He moved down here about 10 years ago, and we moved to the area down in in Henderson. And I I do most of the preaching. He lives there. He's kind of the located minister, so I kind of joke that sometimes I come in Sunday, preach, and then he cleans it up the rest, cleans up my mess the rest of the week. And so we get to spend every Sunday with my parents, and we get to see them a lot. And do you know that that even though my dad is proud of me, I'm sure that I disappoint my dad sometimes. Even at my age, I probably disappoint my dad. There are days that I'm probably too hard on my kids and he's disappointed by that. There are probably days that I'm not hard enough on my kids and he's disappointed. My dad's a super chill guy, but I'm guessing sometimes I disappoint my dad. But here's what I know, even when I disappoint my dad, I'm still my my dad's son. He doesn't boot me out of the family, Maybe this is a thought that'll help you. When I disappoint my heavenly father, I'm still my father's son. Now, maybe you don't like the term disappoint to describe what happens when we rebel against God and sin, and I get that, but just think of it from that perspective. Does it disappoint God when his children choose to sin? Yeah, but just because I choose to sin, even though I'm trying to follow him, does he boot me out of the family every time I sin? well, no, and you know how I know that? I think for first John chapter one, is the verse that's most helpful to me. Here's what, here's what John says in first 1 chap- first John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So if we're walking in the light, we have horizontal connection. We have fellowship with one another. And listen to this. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what's it mean to walk in light? Because the promise is if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses my sins. Verse nine, as I confess those sins to God. What's it mean to walk in the light? That's one of those really like vague preachery phrases. I hope you're walking in the light tonight. Well, thank you. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you what my best shot at what walking in the light means. Perhaps it just means I'm seeking the face of Jesus. If this aisle is the pathway to God, I'm, I'm just walking on this pathway. Are there times that I struggle? Are there times that I stumble and fall? Yeah. But I'm walking.